0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Calgary's incoming mayor declares war on the oil and gas sector, MPs are facing their own vaccine mandate, and Justin Trudeau gets dressed down into Kamloops. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thursday, October 21st, 2021. My great privilege and pleasure to have you aboard. This is going to be a a bit of an interesting show. I'm going to try to cover a few different subject areas here because it's been, despite the fact that Parliament's not sitting, a, a rather busy week for Canadian politics. Certainly as we are getting back into the swing of things. I must say though, thank you to all of you who have written to me since the earlier episode of the show this week in which I spoke with former Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Brian Peckford. If you haven't seen this interview, do go and check it. We have it posted on True North's website. You can get it at tnc.news. As we talk to a former Premier, the last surviving member of that club of first ministers who were around when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was adopted in Canada, and he's saying that the Charter is basically in shreds on the ground and being stomped upon, these are my words, of course, he was far more eloquent in his Newfoundlander way, stomped on by leaders of governments now, federally and provincially, who push vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, lockdown restrictions, and he's saying this is not what we were calling for when we wanted a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And in particular, if you're interested in getting into the wonky stuff, his thoughts on Section 1 of the Charter, which is the so called reasonable limit section, are, are very fascinating. And he said, yeah, if, if we knew that was what that was going to be used for, uh, I mean, basically, we wouldn't have signed it, is what I took away from what he said there. But a lot of great feedback. We've gotten people, even from outside of Canada, that are looking at that and seeing that they wish politicians in their own. Uh, countries were uh, talking like that. So I'm very grateful to all of you who've tuned in and and do watch it if you haven't had a chance yet. I bet we'll be taking clips from that in future shows. I I just suspect that this is going to be something that we will end up revisiting several times over. And I've also had a lot of, I mean, sometimes I'll get a guest on and I get more feedback about the guest than about me, which is fine because you know I bring them on because they're they're far better than me usually. But I've had a lot of people that say you should have Brian Peckford on for a, a full show. So that might be something we do in the future. Thanks to again to all of you for watching that and listening to that. We're going to talk a lot about rights and freedoms later on in the show and about Canadian symbolism, which is something that, believe it or not, does still matter. But I want to first talk about this story out of Alberta. You may remember on Monday night, Alberta had its municipal elections. My colleague Candace Malcolm and I hosted a live show to talk about the referendum, the results in the bigger communities like Calgary and Edmonton. And here's the thing, the Calgary mayor's first order of business has been to give a middle finger to the oil and gas sector that historically has made up the bulk of Alberta's employment, and in particular, Calgary's employment. Her first order of business is to say to them, screw you, you don't matter. This is Calgary Mayor-elect Jody Gondek, and I believe her first interview after being elected as Calgary's Mayor, replacing the head Nenshi, she was sitting down on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, and she says, ah, you know what, the, the first order of business, like the, the very first thing she's going to do, again, the first, not in the hundred days I'm there, we want to get around, the, the very first thing is to declare a climate emergency, so first order of business. I asked mayor-elect Sohi the same thing. Not, not like a, uh, you know, sort of a nice phone call or something. I'm talking about something you're going to sink your teeth into, something that is mayor-elect Gondek's top priority. What's going to be the first thing across your desk?
1: We have had the opportunity to declare a climate emergency for years. We have had various um, documents presented to us as a council, and I think we've had more than enough time to review them. So let's get serious, let's declare this, and let's start going after some of the capital that we will see flow in once we make a bold move like that.
0: It is a bold move, and I don't have to tell you about how even a war, a phrase like climate emergency can ripple through a downtown core. Do you have to find a balance as the mayor of a city that's that's seen itself uh, flourish because of oil and gas revenue. Do you have to be careful about the words you use or are we past that? Do people misunderstand where Calgary and business leaders are at right now?
1: I don't believe that talking about a climate emergency and oil and gas are mutually exclusive ideas. I think as a matter of fact, we've forgotten What we're good at we are very good at energy production and we are also leaders in innovative ways to practice energy production we became fixated on that end product being oil and gas so let's move past the outputs and start talking about the processes again. And let's put ourselves on the map as a city that is the absolute leader in a transitioning economy. And let's show the world that by using innovation and technology, we can come up with sustainable, greener, cleaner solutions across all of our business sectors. That's the kind of message we need to set. Um, You know, we don't need to be hung up on what it is we're producing. Let's talk about the ways that we get there.
0: Oh, yes. So not only is Mayor Gondek of Calgary going to declare a climate emergency, but also she's insisting Calgarians need to, in her words, move past oil and gas. Move past oil and gas. Can you imagine another jurisdiction in the world that would look the gift horse in the mouth, so to speak, and, and take their strongest asset, their strongest resource, and say... Yeah, you know, I may, maybe we maybe we just do something else. This would be like the Banff Tourism Board saying, "Okay, hey guys, just hear me out. Maybe we should do something other than mountain tourism. Maybe we should do like forget about the Rockies. What about?" Uh, uh oh, what else can we do? Eh, I don't know. Uh, no, no, no. We don't want to do Rockies. What what else do we have? Um, horseback. Can we do horseback riding? Okay. Uh, maybe no, no, no. We're not doing the Rockies, Tom. Stop telling it. No, we're we're not promoting that. Or Whistler. Okay. We're gonna move past skiing. Just, just hear me out. No, we're, why are you throwing things at me? These are the board meetings I can imagine if you were to be on some tourism board and say, let's just forget about the strongest thing we have that everyone likes. Now, diversification is all well and good. Not putting all your eggs in one basket, as they say, is fine. But there's a difference between proactively diversifying and saying, yeah, there's no reason we can't be a tech hub. There's no reason we can't do these other things. And doing what Mayor Gondek and a lot of these climate alarmists and or environmental radicals are saying, which is let's just ignore it. Let's move away. Let's actually kick it to the curb. And this is what is becoming the basis, or I'd say has become the basis of the federal government's climate policy. Justin Trudeau has been touting this so-called just transition away from the energy sector, and and they're calling it a just transition because they're trying to insist that there's going to be a soft landing for all of these energy sector workers that they want to put out of a job. No, 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 we'll transition them to new things. It's Justin Trudeau's nicer way of doing what Joe Biden said a while ago of basically just learning to code. This is effectively what they're trying to do now. And when you have an ally in Alberta That's passing on that same message, it's going to be bad news for anyone in that sector in Alberta. Now, Brad Wall, the former premier of Saskatchewan, has said far from Calgary moving past oil and gas, he says it's oil and gas's time to move past Calgary, which I I think is a phenomenal point here. He said on Twitter, oil and gas headquartered companies should move past Calgary, look to some other more welcoming cities. Perhaps that would be Regina or Saskatoon. The problem is if you want a more welcoming city for an oil and gas headquarter, you're going to find a lot more support looking down in the U.S. This is why we've seen this exodus of this sector to greener pastures on the other side of the border because they're getting a, a welcoming government there, less regulation. They're getting more than they can get up here because we have, instead of a government that is trying to support the sector, a government that is actively trying to take it out to the woodshed and execute it. And the fact that the first order of business for the incoming mayor of Calgary is to assist that process, I mean, even Rachel Notley wasn't going to be that bold. To say, yeah, you know, I mean, her policies spoke for themselves, but her language was not that bold. Her language was not that clear. She at least understood that, yeah, you know, maybe it doesn't send a good message to Albertans to talk about me wanting to sign a death warrant on their jobs. And if you think I'm using extreme rhetoric, well, this is, I think, very much matching with the tone of these politicians like Mayor-elect Gondek. And, And she's not alone in this. She's just one notable example of this. And this is why we were talking about this on the live show on Monday. How does a city like Calgary, which is just a sea of blue for the most part federally and provincially, elect all these people municipally? And in a lot of cases, it's because these municipal folks don't show their true colors until they get elected sometime. Here's a clip from Councillor Gondek a few years ago in which the oil and gas sector is like the greatest thing since sliced bread.
2: Because I'm a Canadian and a public servant at the City of Calgary, I support Canada's oil and gas sector. Why? Because Canada's oil and gas firms have repeatedly demonstrated leadership on a global stage, whether through innovations in technology that minimize impact to the environment or unmatched standards in health and safety practices. That's not empty rhetoric. It's rooted in research and review. Rankings like Transparency International and the JANSI Social Index review global corporations for their triple bottom line performance, and Canadian energy producers continue to outperform other nations for one simple reason. Our companies are valued because they lead with their values. My name is Jyothi Gondek, City Councillor for Ward 3. I'm taking action for Canada's future because our national economy depends on Canadians advocating for our leadership in energy-based corporate social responsibility. Please join the movement and spread the word. Share this video and let your friends know that the city of Calgary is unified in supporting our energy sector. We are YYC Proud.
0: So there you go. Which is the authentic Gondek? I I suspect the one now is probably more authentic, but even then, if she's just going to say what she needs to say to get elected in the moment and keep support from whatever constituency she wants in the moment, I don't really think she's all that useful to anyone anyway. But now Calgary's mayor is an enemy of the sector on which Calgary's economy, generally speaking, relies. And this is something unique to Canada. You know how we often hear this expression from the woke left now, check your privilege. I would say the same thing to a lot of these folks. Check your privilege. Elsewhere in the world, countries would kill to have the resource richness that Canada has, that Alberta has, specifically that Calgary has insofar as being the economic hub for this resource is concerned. And just look, this is an article from BBC just one day ago. Fossil fuel production is set to soar over the next decade. Now, the tone of this article is that it's bad news for all of these uh, countries that are about to meet in Glasgow, Scotland for the UN's climate summit for COP26. And they're all concerned that, oh, well, you know, all these countries want to keep global warming down to 1.5 degrees and reduce production, but it looks like fossil fuel production is on the rise. So if you have in Canada environmental activists that are succeeding in getting a foothold in government and turning away from this... Well, everyone else in the world is ignoring their commitment. Everyone else in the world is ignoring what they say is their moral obligation, their moral duty, the Greta Thunberg approach to public policy. And Canada is going to be saying, well, you know, we got to find uh, solar panels and, uh, well, okay, maybe some wind farms or something like that. Like, But the reality is no one else is doing anything about this. If you want to look at the countries who are the big emitters, China is likely not even going to be at cop with a full delegation, even though everyone's been trying to kiss the ring, especially John Kerry in the U.S., John Kerry, the climate envoy, has been saying, ah, yes, China's going to be our partner in climate. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, has said, yes, we're reaching across the aisle. China's going to be our partner in fighting climate change. And just this week, Chairman Xi still not confirmed that he's going to be there. More and more reports suggesting that the head of the Chinese delegation will not be, like for every other country, the head of state or the head of government. So uh, Chairman Xi is not even going to be there. All of these countries around the world have been Trying to kiss the ring, trying to say, well, we don't want to rock the boat, we're going to work with them. And China's just like, yeah, whatever. And China, which is the greatest emitter, the biggest emitter, is the one that's not particularly interested in going along with all these ridiculous alternative energy campaigns. So for the ones who are to turn away a reliable and, by the way, safe and clean source of energy, The hydrocarbon sector in pursuit of something else eliminates a competitive advantage that Canada has and more importantly, sacrifices the jobs, employment and economic well-being of an entire region, not just Alberta, an entire region and, and multiple regions in Canada as a matter of fact. Tomorrow on The Andrew Lawton Show, there's going to be a panel looking at this just transition, something that has significant and wide-reaching implications but has not been getting near the attention it needs from the mainstream media. And we've got a great panel of experts. Uh, We have Michael Binion from the Modern Miracle Network. Danielle Smith will be on. We've got some folks from the industry, from the sector affected that are going to be speaking about this impact. And also, to put a positive spin on it, speaking about the work that the energy sector in Canada is already doing that fits what the government says its stated objectives are. But you never hear the government supporting these initiatives. They don't want to accept that there could be an industry-led solution. So that's going to be tomorrow on the show. But the timing is very good on this. And just as an aside, before we move on, I want to talk about the implications of this because we still don't have the results of the equalization referendum. This is not something we'll have until the 26th because municipalities have to report their numbers to the province and not the most efficient way of doing things, but it is what it is. So all we have are the results that we had on Monday, which were showing at the time in the cities anyway, 58 to 60% of people supporting taking equalization out of the Constitution. Now, as we've talked about, this is not a unilateral move. This doesn't mean that it will be removed from the Constitution, but it does mean that that many Albertans are not a fan of the status quo. Here's the question. Is this a surrogate for general discontent with federalism? Is this a surrogate for separation or independence? I I don't think so, because there are a lot of people that want a better deal that don't want separation. That being said, there was a Main Street poll commissioned by the Western Standard, which showed 45%, 45% of Albertans want to remain in Canada. 40% want to leave. So when I first saw the number forty percent want uh, independence, I'm like, well, that's that's you know again, okay, that's a large enough chunk. But then when I saw that forty five percent were were saying, yeah, we want to remain. So that means that the remainder of that, the fifteen percent, are undecided or not sure, which means they could be swayed either way. But forty percent, so four in ten Albertans, and again, it's one poll, but four in ten Albertans want to be an independent country, would you support Alberta independence either on its own or along with other Western provinces? It's entirely possible that people are taking independence to mean something other than separation. Certainly the Western standards interpretation of this is that it's support for making Alberta an independent country. But but no matter which interpretation you use, that's 40% that think that Alberta needs to be a lot more unilateral and independent and autonomous than it is right now, perhaps bringing some other Western provinces alongside this campaign. Paul Hinman, the leader of the Wild Rose Independence Party, says this is a tipping point, which I don't think anyone can disagree with. And, and the Alberta government, the UCP, cannot just pussyfoot around this and say, well, you know, we'd like a, you know, we'd like a little tweak to the equalization referendum because that's not going to be enough to satisfy these concerns. And when you have from Jody Gondek in Calgary, when you have from the Alberta NDP, when you have from the federal liberals, an assault on the oil and gas sector, which is where, again, even still... The livelihoods of so many Albertans are rooted. That number is only going to grow. More and more, the the result of that is necessarily going to be more and more people not feeling like Canada is a home for them. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Justin Trudeau's jaunt to Tofino on September 30th, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, is proving to be one of the more expensive vacations he's ever taken. Not financially, he can afford that, but in terms of political capital. This was an entirely avoidable, entirely preventable story. If he had just left... One day later, if he he had left on October 1st, this would not be a story at all, but oh no, Justin Trudeau wanted to take advantage of this brand new holiday that he created and go to his favorite beachy destination in Tofino. When a global reporter tracked him down, he just silently walked along the beach until the RCMP intervened and pulled that pesky reporter away so he couldn't ask questions when Justin Trudeau was trying to enjoy his walk in the sand. Well, Justin Trudeau has tried to make amends now and in doing so has had to get a dressing down from Tekamloop's Chief Roseanne Casimir. This is just a little bit of her statement sitting beside Trudeau, who just has to dutifully sit there and listen.
3: When we imagined welcoming Prime Minister Trudeau to our community, it was envisioned that it would be an opportunity for him to interact with a wide array of survivors, intergenerational survivors and many different First Nations as part of September the 30th, the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Two letters of invitations were sent to his office to participate in our event. For us, it was to show his commitment to rectifying the historical wrongs of residential school and to grieve with our residential school survivors, whether in person or by a virtual pre-recorded greeting and message for all of us here. Instead, in the middle of truth-telling, cultural grounding and sharing that unfolded as part of the commemoration of the very first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, in this arbor, a journalist quietly informed us that the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was on vacation in Tofino. The shock, anger, and sorrow and disbelief was palpable in our community. And it rippled throughout the world, to say the least. Today is about making some positive steps forward and rectifying a mistake.
0: Very strong words there. She says, instead, in the middle of this truth-telling, cultural grounding, and sharing, a journalist came up and told her that Justin Trudeau was on holiday. She said her community suffered from shock, anger, sorrow, and disbelief. Now, even though she was saying this and it looks harsh, I'm guessing the Prime Minister's office knew what she was going to say. You don't go into a situation like that blind. You you just don't. It's not done in politics. But you know what? He still took it. And he still says sorry. And like the Teflon Trudeau that he is, it will all go away. That's what happens every single time. He screws up, gets caught, and then apologizes. But interestingly enough, what Chief Casimir said, which I, I found, which I found to be of note, is that she would have just taken a video. She would have, like if if Justin Trudeau had literally just said, "Okay, hang on, uh, yeah, it's a day for reconciliation. Uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, I mean we we've done some bad stuff. Okay, send. All right, now let's go serve. That would have been fine <laughs> if he had just phoned it in." She would have been okay with that. All they wanted was a video. All they wanted was something. But oh no. Ignored the invitations despite his pledge to reconcile and then hits the beach. Now I'm completely happy if Justin Trudeau spends the next four years on a beach, believe it or not. I do not take issue with the vacation. I take issue with the optics and with the hypocrisy. The guy who tells us to atone, the guy who tells us we need to do better, yet he's the one that is apparently most in need of a tongue lashing from the Takam chief. cheap. And his actions on this have been purely window dressing. This is the whole frustration with the flag. The flag has been at half-mast for almost five months. Almost five months through Canada Day, which incidentally, flag protocol says the flag should never be half-mast for. So it's been at half-mast for almost five months. That's what it'll be on October 30th. And he won't put it back up. He says, well, it's, it's the indigenous community's decision as to when it goes back up. And, and even, by the way, uh, Chief Casimir seemed to indicate that she doesn't care if the flag is half mast now. Uh, Dawn Martin on uh, CTV tweeted here that it sounds like she wants the flag half-masted on September 30th from now on to honor residential school victims, but not every day. So she's given the license to just raise the flag. What's the big problem? What's the big deal? And I talked about this on Canada Day on the show. And I talked about it on Reconciliation Day on the show. And my point is that symbols matter. When it comes to things that you're doing, obviously actions are speaking louder than words and louder than symbols. But symbols do matter, especially when those symbols are sending the opposite of the message you're trying to. And that's what's happening here. What Justin Trudeau has done is made it so a flag being at half-mast is literally meaningless. He's made it so that a flag at half-mast is something that you ignore. It used to be you'd look up and see a flag at half-mast and say, oh, I wonder what happened today, because it was a jarring image. Now, if you see the flag at full-mast, you'd be like, oh, wow, (laughs) something really good must have happened. We've earned the right to celebrate. We've earned the right to be proud of our country and fly our flag high. Now, incidentally, with the throne speech coming up, when Parliament resumes, I wondered if this would mean that the Governor General's flag would have to be at half-mast, because whenever the Governor General is on Parliament Hill, they fly the Governor General's standard. Whenever Her Majesty the Queen is on Parliament Hill, they fly the Queen's personal flag in Canada. And I was wondering, does this mean that the Governor General's flag would have to be at half-mast? These are the questions that keep me up at night. And I reached out to Rita Hall, and they said, no, actually, the uh, Governor General's flag is never at half-mast under any circumstances, no matter the location. So this half-masting order wouldn't extend to that flag, which makes me wonder if Justin Trudeau would lift it before Parliament resumes just in case. But he's boxed himself in, because by saying it's not his decision, by saying that he's not the one that gets to make the call, he has trapped himself because there will never be a moment when you can say all of the problems with Indigenous communities and Canadian relations are solved. That point is not going to come, certainly not in his time in office. So by abdicating this decision, he's really made it so that nothing can be done. Andrew Potter had a fantastic op-ed in the Globe and Mail about this. and He talked about how the symbolism is very relevant here. He says, it's bad enough that Mr. Trudeau had allowed the flag of Canada to come to symbolize Canada's historic ill-treatment of its indigenous peoples, but now the prospect of raising them is being held hostage by the Prime Minister's own callousness and indifference. This is no way to run a country. And, and that's a, a tremendous point. Justin Trudeau has actually made the Canadian flag something to be ashamed of when that was never its purpose. And what Andrew Potter writes about in his column here is that there was, in fact, a large amount of buy-in by Canadians of the flag because the flag was one of the most recognizable, unifying, and pride-inducing symbols in Canada. And now Justin Trudeau has actually changed that. He's made it so the flag is something to be ashamed of. The flag is something to be embarrassed by. And how do you, ever raise the flag high and not expect protests and desecration if that's the image of the Canadian flag that you've tried to cement in a generation of young Canadians. So it is shameful. Whenever the flag goes back up, it will be too late, but still it does in fact need to go back up. And before I wrap things up, I wanted to share a word or two about this vaccine mandate for members of Parliament. This is something that, again, as MPs go back before the House of Commons in the coming days, the House of Commons committee of MPs that runs basically how the House will be structured has decided to put in a vaccine mandate. You must be vaccinated if you want to enter the grounds of the House of Commons, which means if you want to take your seat as an elected MP, you have to be fully vaccinated or have a medical exemption. And if you have a medical exemption, you have to do testing. But there's no testing alternative if you just, for whatever reason, don't want to get vaccinated for moral or religious or just because you don't want to reasons. Because you don't want to reasons. That's, a, that's the technical term, I believe. It's on the vaccine certificates. The uh, What's your reason? Don't want to. But here's the thing. You look at this in the context of what we just went through, which was an election. Voters had the right to ask their candidates whether they were vaccinated or not. They had the right to hear what their answer was or what their non-answer was and decide, does this person deserve to represent me? If that's something a voter cares about. If a voter cares about an MP's vaccination status, they had the right to weigh in. So for the House of Commons to now put a policy forward that will affect whether these MPs can take their seats is absolutely shameful because the MPs have fulfilled their mandate. They've fulfilled their prerequisite for showing up in the House of Commons, which was getting elected. By the people they represent, not by a group of Board of the Internal Economy MPs sitting behind closed doors, which is precisely what happened. Blake Richards, who's the conservative whip, has said he can't speak about what happened because the meeting was in camera, but suffice it to say, he thinks this is wrong. MP should have a choice. Vaccination is a personal choice, not something that can be imposed by a group of nine in a darkened room. The room might have been well lit, but you understand the point. So when I see something like this, I see a subversion of democratic will. It's at this point not even clear if MPs will have the hybrid option again. It's not clear if MPs will be able to zoom in like they could throughout the last couple of years. If they can, then the House of Commons will say, well, that's enough of a concession. If you don't want to go in, you can still do it. But right now, there's no guarantee that an unvaccinated member of parliament will even be able to sit as a member of parliament until they work this out. And again, I suspect there will be a hybrid option if only to neutralize the concerns from unvaccinated MPs. And we don't know how many there are. The Liberals, the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, they've all said our caucuses are fully vaccinated. It's the Conservatives who say, which is, I think, the right position, we don't force it, we encourage it. It's up to individual MPs to decide what they want to do and if they want to disclose that. But anytime you start putting up barriers... For when duly elected representatives can take their seats, what you are doing is patently undemocratic. And as we were speaking about earlier on in the show, that interview I did with Brian Peckford, when he talked about what has happened to rights and freedoms coming up on 40 years after a group of politicians and lawyers and advocates thought they were definitively cementing rights and freedoms into the Canadian consciousness and Canadian legal system, And now in just a generation and a half, those rights are being summarily ignored, even in the very house that passed that charter. Unreal. We have to end things there. My thanks to you all for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow with a special on the Just Transition and then a regular full-strength edition of the Andrew Lawton Show coming up next week. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all.